I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident, where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to experience London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential, essential politics podcast, is brought to you in association with The Resident. Well, this was an event that uh, took place, uh, as you say, on my birthday. I'd come back from a long uh, external visit. I thought it was uh, reasonably necessary for for work purposes because I was standing at my desk surrounded by officials who'd been asked to come and uh, wish me a happy birthday. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. Lovely to be back with you this week. Thanks for being there. Thank you for following and subscribing as well to the podcast and for listening. If you're brand new, it's lovely to have you here. And if you've been here from the start, well done. Uh, We really appreciate that. Thank you for being here on Whitehall Sources. This is your insider guide to everything that goes on in politics. We speak to advisors, to various government departments, to Number 10 and the Prime Minister, and to leaders of the opposition as well, to get the inside track on how things work and what is happening now. Lots to come on this episode. A little bit later on, we'll be speaking to Raoul Rapparel, who was an advisor in the Department for Exiting the EU. Remember when that was a thing? So he'll be telling us about the art of making a Brexit deal. Uh, where Rishi Sunak got it right compared to previous Prime Ministers, and indeed his thoughts on the vote this week uh, on the Windsor framework as well. So we'll do that a little bit later on. First, though, let's welcome Frankie Leach. Hello, Frankie. Hello. Hi. You had the COVID again. Gosh, that's very that's very old-fashioned. And you know what? It's so weird because I tested positive just about a year after I last tested positive. So really? I wonder if my this is like my annual treat 
<laughs> my annual pre-spring treat to get COVID. But yeah, I'm back and, and fighting fit. And it's weird because I've actually been in Parliament twice this week. And I'm planning on going there a third time. Have you? June. Yeah, and I actually went to um, Lotto, the leader of the opposition's office, yesterday. Because um, I was having a coffee and a catch-up with someone I used to work with. And I walked up those same stairs and I realised that it had been five years, again, literally five years to the day, that day, um, that I first joined Lotto. So Whoa. it was all feeling very anniversary-esque. I got a crap coffee from Portcullis House, which is where everyone goes and sits and has their coffee. And I thought for a little bit about, do I miss it? And I do a bit, mm. but seeing what it's like and seeing how really nothing has changed, I was like, yeah. I'm not coming back. <laughs> not that it was ever on the cards, but I was like, I'm happy being outside mm. looking in. That seems to be quite a common <laughs> theme, I think, actually. The more people that we speak to on this podcast who have been advisors, special advisors, whatever, whenever we ask if they've kind of enjoyed it, it's always, you know, yes, you're in the in the thick of it and it's great and it's mad and it's busy and stressful, but actually life after that is really quite fun. What is it? Is it the same decor? Has anything really, has anything changed in the, in the leader of the opposition's office? No, nothing really wow. has changed. I mean, when I say the same decor, there's still the um, framed pictures from uh, kind of when the Labour Party was in government with mm. Harold Wilson, nice things like that. Um, but also the thing that I was thinking about yesterday, I had gone to the terrace for some drinks. And for those of you who don't know, the terrace is the beautiful bit outside the Houses of Parliament where you can kind of sit and have your lunch. And it's basically the best beer garden in the world. It's right beside right the river. The, right by the Thames. And you sit there and it feels very kind of West Wing and, you know, you're rubbing shoulders with everyone. I sat next to Sajid Javid, not like literally next to him, but he was on the table next to me. And it was it's always quite funny when you see people who've kind of fallen from grace, just looking normal. <laughs> um, and I was chatting to a friend of mine and we were talking about the kind of people who survive in Westminster, and we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but I was saying, you know, there are people who go into Westminster, kind of really get their heads in the game and have this really intense experience. Mm. And then they leave, but they stay Westminster adjacent. And that's kind of where I'd put myself, like I dip in and out, but I feel very normal. And I was talking to someone who's very much like their head is still in it. And they were saying, that's so weird to hear someone with the perspective of knowing what it's like so being able to have a conversation about the weird intricacies but having a very normal perspective on everything and i was saying and i don't know if you feel the same way we can chat to raul about this afterwards and you know listeners can write in if they've worked in westminster before i feel like the only people right who survive in westminster for their whole lives there are some people that work in that place forever yeah. and i'm sorry to say but those people are psychopaths <laughs> yeah you if you could survive that environment for your whole life, you are a braver man than I. I think that's right, you know, and I, 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 I would actually apply that to basically any job. If you're able to kind of do it consistently for the whole of your working life, I think that's astonishing, absolutely astonishing, because you're so baked in. And, you know, I'm thinking people do it for long spells, but I mean, the, that is your career. With yeah, no like break, a lifer. Exactly. No mm. break, no variety, no kind of different employer even. It's, it is remarkable. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I feel that. In, there's a bit of that in media too. We used to refer to BBC lifers when I worked at the BBC. <laughs> you could spot them a mile off. And they weren't all terrible, let me be no. clear. But, you know, you could spot them a mile off, definitely. Um, yeah, that well, it was reminding me as well when I was there about, um, obviously I was, well, you don't know this, but I was there on the day that um, Boris was giving evidence to the Of committee. course. 
And, you know, it was alive with the hubbub and on every screen, um, even in Strangers Bar, which is the bar that's next to the terrace, there was Boris Johnson giving evidence. And it was interesting the way people were kind of responding to that evidence. I had a couple of chats with people who said that they think that he's now put himself in such a place where he's become like a sort of like a fringe politician. And the best thing that Rishi Sunak can do right now is burn him so severely that he looks like Mr. Sensible mm. and Boris Johnson just looks like this terribly behaved radical politician who's going to be kind of pushed to the sidelines and the fringes. Lots more to come with Frankie, who spent the day at Westminster yesterday, and she will tell us what it was like really to be there as Boris Johnson was being grilled by a parliamentary committee. She was literally wandering around the parliamentary estate with Boris Johnson on all the TV screens and people standing around watching and trying to analyse exactly what was going on. But now, just a slightly different um, interlude, really, for the podcast. Kirsty Buchanan is here. Hi, Kirsty. Hello. Hello. Uh, we were going to start just by talking about something a little different um, because of, well, your experience, your family's experience over the last kind of 24 hours at the time that we're speaking to you anyway on Thursday morning. Um, your son had, a, well, a really tough experience actually with a variety of people, including private security guards, uh, the police as well in your local area. And this has gone mega viral on Twitter. You may have seen the, the absolutely distressing and awful video of these two people pinning your son to the ground. I suppose just start by telling us what what happened. Okay, so um, it was after school. Uh, my son and a friend of his had uh, gone to get something to eat and then they'd nipped into a uh, super drug to get this shampoo called Cantu. My son's got natural hair and Cantu is very good for um, for his hair. So it nipped in to get that. He was followed, they were followed in by two, they're called rangers. Now these are uh, not council workers. Uh, they are high, private security firm hired by Chichester's business improvement district to, you know, kind of keep the, the you know, the, the streets, the high street safe as it were. Um, and they're paid for by a levy from from the shopkeepers. They followed my son in. Um, uh, they said, as they followed them in, we don't like you, um, and followed them into the shop. Now, Henry got to the uh, to the point of getting the can too and being a typical cheeky 15-year-old started joking around because these rangers are stood right in front of him um, and joking around about, you know, what it was that they thought they were doing. So the next thing he knows, and by the way, just as an aside, two weeks earlier, he'd had a similar exchange with the rangers who'd also followed him into another shop and they'd kind of all laughed it off. Mm. So uh, imagine his uh, shock when uh, he's joking around and the next thing he knows, his arm's been grabbed, he's been thrown onto the floor uh, one of the security guards sits on top of him. Uh, they pull out plastic handcuffs. They handcuff him, um, and then they yank his arms up his back, at which point uh, a friend of his comes in to try and get the security guards off him because at this point my son is writhing around in pain, I'm afraid using some rather unparliamentary language, um, and screaming, it hurts, it hurts because they'd yanked his right shoulders and his arms right back. Uh, so what then subsequently happened is Sussex police uh, arrived. Uh, they were told um, 
by the uh, other kids that had kind of gathered there that my son had been subjected to an unprovoked assault. Nevertheless, Sussex police arrested my child and the other boy that came to his aid. Uh, he was taken into custody for an hour and a half. I wasn't told where he was. Now, Sussex police have a policy of not holding minors in custody. Nevertheless, he was held in custody for, uh, forgive me if I'm a bit off on the timing, five, six, seven hours. He was released at 1.15 in the morning. Um, and at the last time I spoke to a senior officer about nine or 10 o'clock at night, they still hadn't recovered the CCT footage from within the super drug store, which would have told them exactly what happened. So, uh, look, this raises a number of questions for me. Um, uh, and I think the first thing I would like is a, you know, a full investigation into the Sussex Police handling of this matter. Uh, but I also want a wider review of the use of these private security firms. Now, what's happened is the police have started to sort of pull back from what we used to call community policing is there's been a rise in these sort of private security firms policing our high streets. Now, what is the role of these people in our public protection? You know, what is the due diligence on who and how is, you know, who is hired and how they are trained? You know, uh, what is their you know training techniques for restraint? What is their role and remit? Because, you know, I know where my mind went when I looked at that video last night. I can't begin to tell you. Uh, sorry, I'm going to get a bit emotional. No, I can't begin apologize. to tell you how how distressing that was to see that. Um, and uh, I, I think it just raises for me wider questions outside of my son about our public protection and the role of these private security guards on our high streets. Yeah. Don't, absolutely don't apologise, Kirsty, because I think nobody can watch the video without immediately, in their own mind, thinking, I've seen this video before, actually, in different contexts and with far more um, prevalence and frequency than we would like. We've seen these sorts of videos before, and they've often resulted in actually the deaths of uh, black people, particularly black men, in other contexts. And so, of course, it is distressing and um, absolutely no need to apologise at all for that, because that is where all of our minds went when we saw this. Um, just in terms of, I suppose, what you're saying about the, the, the security guards um, who are um, you know, employed by this, this bid, Ch Chichester bid, um, funded, as you say, by you know, kind of local um, businesses and whatnot. That's a really interesting sort of grey area, I suppose, in all of this, because what powers do they have? What can they do? Um, I just want to mention, just by virtue of doing the kind of journalism and all of this as well, that a spokesman for Superdrug, who's been speaking to the Mail Online, said an incident occurred today, this was when they were speaking yesterday, in our Chichester store between Chichester bid rangers and a group of young males they were monitoring. Unfortunately, female staff were also assaulted. This is now a police matter. We're offering our full assistance to Sussex Police. Priority is always to keep colleagues and customers safe. We have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to violence and aggression. Is what Superdrug have had to say. Um, you mentioned what the police have said about you know the kind of yeah. arrests that were carried out as well. Can I address a couple of points uh, of fact um, that have arisen, uh, not least I think from the statement that was issued by Sussex Police. Um, my understanding is that uh, the alleged assault of a female shop worker happened in the melee after the boy went to my son's aid. So to be clear, 
my son was not arrested for assaulting a shop worker. To also be clear, my son was not arrested for shoplifting. I am unclear as to why my son was arrested at all um, and why he was the one that ended up being taken away by the police and not these two grown men that seem, as far as I can tell, and the video shows have subjected my son to an unprovoked, extremely upsetting and mm. violent assault mm. in a shop, yeah, in a high street in Chichester when he went in to just buy some shampoo. And let's not forget that he's 15 years old. He is 15 years old. He's 15 years old. And I've had... A, a, so first of all, I wanted to say a huge thank you to everybody that uh, has uh, texted me or emailed me to, to send me their thoughts and love and solidarity. It means a lot at what is an extremely distressing time for me. For the less charitable people on Twitter uh, that have said, what difference does it make that my son is black? And that I mentioned it in the tweet. A couple of things I wanted to say about that. One, uh, I mentioned that because obviously uh, you can't see my son in that video. And I think it's an important distinction to make because uh, let's put it this way, Callum, if I had gone into Superdrug to buy my son Cantu for his hair, do you think they would have followed me? Do you think they would have slam dunked me to the ground and cuffed me? No. Draw your own, draw your own conclusions. Yeah. And when the police came... And I said to the police, I have been subjected to an unprovoked assault by these two men. Do you think they would have paid attention or do you think they would have just, you know, bundled me into the back of a police car and carted me off? Mm. Again, draw your own conclusion. You know, and I, uh, I put it out on Twitter because, you know, look, the reality is for my son and, you know, lots and lots and lots of people's sons in this country, their daily reality is a routine kind of stop and accounts by the police. Uh, their daily reality is being subjected to, uh, you know, both unconscious racism and pretty conscious and sometimes really overt and disgusting racism. Um, you know, it won't be a surprise to millions of people that live in this country, but to have two children who are mixed race, who are subjected to the levels of, abuse that my children are subjected to on a regular basis and I you know I put in the complaints to the school and I put in the complaints and I fill out the paperwork and I say to my children well done for not rising to it when they're called the most appalling things in the street and 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 right and I just looked at that last night and it was just the last straw and I just didn't feel I had any other choice but to do that because you know what else have I got except to say, look, this is what it looks like. And don't tell me that race doesn't have something to do with what happened to my son, because I just don't believe it. Kirsty, take your time. Take your time. We, um, at the time of speaking, the video has been viewed nearly a million times. As you say, there have been what look like to me thousands of messages of replying and in solidarity and people standing with you. And of course, there is still questions to be answered at this point, and you are asking them, and we will we will await a lot of very important answers actually at this point as well. Um, so no, it's it's awful. If you um, hadn't seen the video, it has been shared by Kirsty online. You can you can find that it is distressing. I will warn you, it is difficult to see, but it is there and it is reality, um, and so you can see that online on Twitter. 
Um, and so a slightly different feel to the start of our podcast today, but an important one. And you know Kirsty, you love listening to Kirsty. That's why you're here on Whitehall Sources, is to hear from her. And so an important uh, issue to address, which of course is not, you know, not completely removed, as you've highlighted from the world of politics in which we usually inhabit on this podcast as well. And so an important one for us to cover. Um, yeah, thanks Kirsty. thank you for telling us, and uh, we will keep in touch on that. Kirsty will be back with us on next week's podcast. For now, though, let's return to Parliament, where, of course, this week, this happened. Would you have advised anyone else in the country if they'd asked you at one of the press conferences at that time to have a large social gathering in the garden? It, I, it was not a large social gathering. It was a, it was, it was a gathering intended... And I really must insist on this point. People who say that we were partying in lockdown simply do not know what they are talking about. People who say that uh, that event was a purely social gathering are, are quite wrong. My, pu- my purpose there was to thank staff, to motivate them in what had been a, a very difficult time and what was also a very difficult day in which the Cabinet Secretary had just resigned. Frankie's back with us. Um, amazing that you were there, actually, to kind of witness the atmosphere around Westminster as the Privileges Committee, well, yes. took Boris Johnson out for a walk, frankly. Um, and I, I'm <laughs> took quite... him out for a walk and like a spanking. Yeah, well, absolutely. Actually, maybe not. Harriet Harman spanked <laughs> Yeah, you heard it here first. That's very, that very much a metaphorical... <laughs> A metaphorical analogy, (laughs) to be clear. I think the the sort of upshot of all of this, and perhaps this is what you were soaking up a bit in in Parliament yesterday, Frankie, is that the sort of of line that I'm going to take from the brilliant Chris Mason's piece on the BBC News website this morning, and this was coined by American President Ronald Reagan, if you're explaining, you're losing. And Boris Johnson spent hours, hours in front of that committee trying to explain his actions during lockdown and under COVID restrictions. And I'm trying to pick up if there's really a consensus on on how he did, I suppose. I mean, all of it dredges up our memories of COVID and and what we did and how we all battled through it and how some people had a really tough time. I I just wonder how you viewed the the committee's performance and Boris Johnson's performance, really. I think the first thing I have to do is is just laugh at how amazing. So Harriet Harman, for those of you who didn't see the clip, was wearing this like chain necklace. She looked so glam and it made me laugh because I was like, is she trying to send him vibes like, Boris Johnson, you're going to jail. (laughs) (laughs) Boris Johnson, you belong in jail. I loved it. Which to be clear, (laughs) the Privileges Committee do not have the power to send him (laughs) to jail. They have to spank or imprison, just to be clear. But I take what you mean, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was kind of like a big chunky rope type, chain type. It was a power thing for sure. It was was definitely a metaphor. Um, Anyway, I think that the thing about the evidence that Boris Johnson gave yesterday is he gave off the impression that he didn't kind of really understand the line of questioning. His face, particularly when women were speaking, and a few women have pointed this out over the last day or so, was like he didn't understand their line of questioning. So kind of he was trying to like wig them out by being like, I don't actually even understand what you're saying because it doesn't really make any sense. But when he actually was speaking, his whole defence is, I may have broken the rules, but I didn't know that I was breaking them at the time, which has been really his excuse the whole time. And what Harriet Harman said yesterday, she used this metaphor where she said, if I was speeding and I was driving at 100 miles per hour and I knew that I was driving at 100 miles per hour, I would not need someone on the side of the road to say, 
you're speeding because you're driving 100 miles per hour. I would just know. And it's those kind of ways that they try to contextualise his rule breaking that Boris Johnson kind of played dumb on. I think the main thing is that he took a pretty big pummeling in that committee and he wasn't able to find a way to make it look like he didn't know what he was doing. I think the kind of general consensus across Westminster is that Boris Johnson knew that he was breaking the rules. He's not willing to take responsibility for it. And that's what the impression that he gave in that committee was. The next thing that we've got to consider is the uh, the privileges committee can recommend a suspension And I believe that if it's more than 10 days that you're suspended from Parliament after this investigation, it then triggers a by-election. Now, the interesting thing about the dynamics of a by-election would be that obviously Boris Johnson would be, we think, the Conservative Party candidate for a by-election in Uxbridge. The thing about Uxbridge is it's kind of quite marginal. And the Labour Party have been targeting that seat for a long time now. In the last couple of years, they've got closer and closer to dethroning Boris Johnson. So... Rishi Sunak now has to, I guess, make a plan, mm. which is that if the Privileges Committee do suspend him for 10 days or more, um, the by-election will be triggered. So then does Rishi Sunak get, you know, CCHQ to pump a load of resources into Uxbridge and save Boris Johnson, um, which means he remains a thorn in his side? Or does he essentially sacrifice the seat, allow Boris Johnson to become a martyr, if you will, for the Brexit cause? And he's now kind of labelling himself as like a bit of an anti-establishment politician, mm. Boris Johnson is, which mm. always makes me laugh. But you can see the trajectory this is going down. So it's a, it's a sticky predicament, really, for someone like Rishi Sunak. What I think is likely is that maybe we won't get to that point. They might not recommend that he is suspended for 10 days or more. And then what do you do? Does Boris Johnson remain this kind of fringe backbench politician who's making lots of money or does Rishi Sunak do something about him because he's still a bit of a sleeping threat so at the, the moment? Yeah, well, this is the thing. So the the kind of the Boris Johnson show continues in the face of Rishi Sunak's uh, almost almost unarguable momentum. So what you make of the policies aside, the momentum of the feeling of him getting things done, whether it's the Brexit deal, his immigration plans, um, inflation was probably a slight bump in the road this week, wasn't it? That kind of surprise that it's gone back up. But this feeling that Sunak is kind of doing stuff, for how long does he accept that Boris Johnson can kind of derail that by simply by being there a lot yeah, of the time? Yeah, by just existing. Yeah, exactly. So, well, he's it, voting against the Northern Ireland protocol against the new with yeah the with the um the Windsor framework the, the break yeah. the Stormont break um, so and Liz Truss exactly enough. yeah and, and um, so there's kind of a cohort forming around well, this sort of pushback in, in Rishi Sunak's face almost yeah and look I feel like this rumbles rumbles in the jungle at the moment in parliament because basically as well you've got this new additional thing which is that the ERG doesn't like the Windsor framework so these either. are the hardline Brexiteers of the European, yeah, research, the European group. research group exactly and Marc Francois who was part of the ERG seems to kind of be taking over the de facto leadership of the ERG because there was a story that was during the rounds this week which really made me laugh which is somebody overheard Steve Baker who is the current leader mm. of the ERG who is actually I believe um, he's not standing down is he no let's do that again no that's good cool. um, go for it uh, there was a very story that was circulating around Westminster this week about Steve Baker, who is the leader of the ERG and kind of like darling of the, the European research group, funny guy. And um, the journalist reported to <laughs> Steve, uh, Steve Baker, who suggested, by the way, that they should be voting 
for the Windsor framework and thinks that he's kind of given off the suggestion he thinks it's a political mistake to not back it. Um, shouting down the phone, saying they've removed me from the ERG WhatsApp group oh, that gosh. I set up. So The politics clearly, of WhatsApp groups is a whole podcast episode in itself, I think, isn't it? I know, it's I know. So clearly it's not all harmonious in Westminster when it comes to the Windsor framework. So, yeah. Let's see what Rishi Sunak does. And also, I have to say, one of the things that really made me laugh this week as well, even though it's not that funny, <laughs> is that on the day that Boris Johnson was giving evidence to the Privileges Committee, lo and behold, the best example of a news dump I've ever seen um, from the number 10 press office, which is that uh, whilst Boris Johnson was giving evidence, they published Rishi Sunak's. Mm. Uh, people are going to get tax summary rather than tax return. And it's drawn criticism from advocacy groups like Tax Justice UK, for example, who have said that because a lot of what Rishi Sunak pays tax on is things like capital gains um, as well as income. Um, they were saying that some of the tax summary shows that he's on the same tax rate for some things as somebody who's earning £40,000. So I don't know the specifics of how much Rishi Sunak actually earns, but I would probably suggest it's a little bit more than £40,000. So they were clever in terms of the strategic timing of when to drop that tax summary. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how that develops over time. Because again, what you've got is Boris Johnson positioning himself as kind of like the anti-establishment figure if the establishment in this multiverse is trying to get a softer Brexit deal than mm. perhaps B Boris Johnson wanted to get. And it will be interesting to see kind of how Boris Johnson plays on that because all this tells me is that Rishi Sunak isn't in the clear just yet. He's still got a few wobbly things and loose ends that he needs to tie up. And I think the Windsor framework may prove a sticky issue for him in the future because he's still got to deal with the problem that the DUP doesn't want to back it. So there's still political problems going on. Yeah. But I think in this latest round of Boris versus Rishi, Boris is very much lost this week. That brings us very nicely to Raoul Ruparel, who will be with us right after this. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So... We have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at The Resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. That actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. Well, it turned into a super busy week in Parliament. Boris Johnson was being grilled by the Privileges Committee. That then had to be paused so that a vote could take place in Parliament on part of the government's new Brexit deal. This is the Stormont Break 
part of Rishi Sunak's Windsor framework, which has been described as one of the most significant changes in the post-Brexit plan for Northern Ireland. The government did win support for the Stormont break despite a rebellion from some of its own MPs and a backlash from members of the Democratic Unionist Party. Well, welcome our Spagoo special guest, you get it, Spagoo, special guest, yeah, fine. Our Spagoo for this week, Raul Ruparel, who worked on Theresa May's Brexit plan. I joined uh, in September 2016 working for David Davis as a special advisor when he was uh, Secretary of State for exiting the EU and was with him there until his resignation uh, in June 2018, I think. Um, and then in June 2018, I moved across to work for the Prime Minister Theresa May as one of her advisors on Europe and Brexit uh, until her resignation. <laughs> Gosh. Right, okay. I mean, all, all political careers seem to end in the same way, don't they? I don't think it's a reflection on you. <laughs> No, I think I think there are lots of spads that have worked for ministers that have resigned over the past few years. So yeah. I don't I don't take it too personally. No, that's good. Uh, and the other question we always ask is whether you have fond memories um, of your time, you know, as a special advisor in those contexts. Fond, fond is a strong word. You know, obviously it was a very interesting time to be involved, and it was uh, very intense. And I'm very glad I did it, and it was a privilege to do it. But um, yeah, sometimes uh, you do have to remind yourself that it was a very difficult time during politics as well. Yeah, of course, really, really difficult. And I suppose you know that it's so pertinent to be speaking to you, of course, given the Windsor framework, which has now been voted on uh, as of this week. I suppose first of all, how do you how do you consider that that, that Rishi Sunak has succeeded where others before him have? have repeatedly seemingly failed yeah well i think credit to rishi sunak and his team to be fair you know as you say they have managed to achieve things that others have aimed for particularly in terms of the kind of uh, channels approach and uh, you know uh, softening the kind of border between great britain and northern ireland and also this element of the stormont break giving uh, you know more democratic say in northern ireland these are things that we've been trying to do for some time so, you know, I, I think definitely credits them. Look, I think part of it is also, though, that this has just been a long journey for lots of people involved. And, you know, none of these are particularly new ideas. You know, there's stuff that I worked on when I was in government in 2017, 2018, and we tried for... Uh, and weren't able to achieve. And I think part of it has just been, particularly on the EU side, you know, there's been a lot more engagement with people in Northern Ireland, a lot more engagement with the unionist community, a lot more engagement with the business community, and they've better understood some of the practical challenges to the protocol and, and how it's being implemented. And, and that's why, you know, it played a big role in getting where we've got. So, yeah, some people have asked me, am I frustrated that they've achieved things that you weren't able to achieve? And it's not really frustration. I think it's just the reality of, you know, sometimes people have to go on a journey and, and you have to take people along and people have to experience it and even though we knew some of this stuff was probably necessary in 2017-18 um, it doesn't mean uh, you know either side or or, or or you know the wider sort of parliament or, or politics was ready for it yeah that's and it's really interesting because i wonder if you can give us a bit of insight perhaps into what those conversations at the time were like because as you say there are similarities in what has now been agreed um and so where was what was the kind of resistance or the difficulty or was it a you know a personnel thing what was it like yeah, so I think that it was actually difficulties on both sides, to be honest. So I think on the EU side, the difficulty was, you know, they we had the joint report in sort of December 2017, if people remember, and lots of controversy around that. And I think both sides, you know, had quite a different understanding of what it really meant, to be honest. It was a bit of a fudge um, just to get the process moving along, particularly around Northern Ireland. And then um, very quickly after that, the EU moved to publishing their legal text, which basically set a, a very hard border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and had uh, Northern Ireland in the kind of single market for goods and customs union. And, and there was a full 
full fat kind of border between GB and NI. Uh, and then, you know, that made it very difficult. Basically, once they had set that out in legal text, they weren't really willing to consider alternatives. They weren't really willing to, to look at how it could work in, in practice in any meaningful way. So I think that was the real difficulty on the EU side. And so we basically had to spend the next 18 months pulling them out of that kind of hole and trying to trying to move away from that mm. uh, and i think that's also a strategic mistake in some ways on the uk side that we let them get their legal text out without publishing our own or without having our own view out there and then on the uk side obviously we had a, a quite complicated situation at the time and i think you know prime minister theresa may had set out quite clearly around that time that she wouldn't accept and no prime minister could accept in her view a border in the irish sea and so that meant that the types of proposals that you know uh, around channels that we have now which actually i was always quite a strong advocate for um you know didn't really get the time of day or didn't get the attention maybe they they could have got because fundamentally it does involve some element of a border in the irc now it's significantly softened and and you know there are lots of easements and and a minimal border for stuff flowing into northern ireland but it but it is fundamentally a slightly different approach and and because of that you know the attention under theresa was very much on the uk wide sort of um what you know the uk wide customs area which became the kind of backstop or protocol uh, as it was then um so for a number of reasons really it just yeah we didn't quite uh, we weren't in that space and the politics wasn't there and i don't think either side was in the right headspace for that kind of conversation at that point in time yeah and when we talk about negotiations and conversations and stuff is that is that literally what it is like people in a room talking through these things which i can imagine would be painstaking but that's how i very much picture it you know everyone around a table just sort of working hard through line by line as to what these things mean yes you have quite a lot of different levels to these sorts of negotiations you do have the technical official led negotiations which get very much you know you have a bunch of officials from both sides going line by line back and forth through text and and things like that and that's very much the chunk of the negotiations where the detail happens uh, and some of these can be quite private conversations between the lead negotiators or, or whatever it might be um, but yeah there's a lot of people locked in small rooms working through detailed legal text so you have that at one level but then you also have the more kind of political level of the negotiations where you get you know these dinners between between Theresa or whoever it might have been and, and Jean-Claude Juncker or, or the opposite numbers. Um, and those can vary between being very kind of stage managed and very formal. So I, th I think particularly some of the interactions David Davis had with Michel Barnier, for example, you know, there had been a lot of work by the officials behind the scenes on that. And mm -hmm. actually the extent to which the, the conversations in the room between Michelle and, and Dave Davis were negotiations, I think, you know, not massively, there, there was a bit of the politics, but, you know, actually they didn't get into a huge amount of the detail a lot of the time. And that's the case with a lot of these kind of political meetings, but then you can have some where you, you know, you have the more informal dinners with the, with the politicians and they do actually start hashing things through. So um, yeah, lots of different levels to this but uh, i think um you know fundamentally a lot of the detail does happen at the official level with those people locked in those rooms working through the detailed legal text line by line and then the other aspect to all of this is the back channeling you know you do have um while you have both sides saying stuff publicly you obviously do have people who have back channels who have contacts on either side and have those kind of quiet conversations to test and float ideas and um, you know, you have things that happen outside of formal channels. And a lot of this is kind of relationship driven as well. Yeah. Is it is it possible to have a rewarding day <laughs> in negotiations? 
I mean, I'm sure it's possible. I'm not sure I ever had any um, during the time working for working for Theresa's government. Um, you know, it was quite different. No, it is definitely possible. Um, and I think, you know, whatever way you look at it, you know, people don't agree with the direction that Theresa May took it in, obviously, with the backstop and um, the UK-wide element to customs there. But it was something we were told continuously wouldn't be achieved in negotiation the EU would never agree to. And they did. So obviously, there was some element of of sort of success in the negotiations that that was what the UK and, and um, you know, we were aiming for and we achieved that. So obviously, didn't prove to be uh, get support in Parliament, but there were, there were good days and there can be good days. Um, yeah, I think it is, but it is a very difficult and grinding process mm. um you know and i think particularly at that time you know there was still quite a lot of animosity um between the two sides and i think particularly at the time the eu was taking a you know i guess quite a stringent approach you know it wasn't long after in the aftermath of the brexit vote there was still a lot of commentary flying around a lot of quite difficult comments coming from our backbenchers and from from people around the brexit vote but also i think from some people on the eu side as well in terms of their response to the brexit vote so you know that made the atmosphere quite difficult and then also you have the fact that you know there is a narrative and comms aspect to all of this uh, and so you do have briefing going on you do have the pr kind of war going on uh, and I think, you know, my my feeling is that actually in the phase where I was there, we we did lose that and, and the EU was able to to dominate the narrative um, for whatever reason. There were lots of reasons behind it. But um, I think, you know, it, it, there, that aspect also adds another kind of element to this. So, yeah, there are there are possible to have positive days, but it is always a pretty long and grinding process. But as you see with what, you know, Rishi Sunak and his team has achieved, uh, you know, it's a, it, that, you know, they've had a very positive day. And I'd argue some of the the press and that, that Rishi has received in a response to the Windsor framework has probably been some of the best, if not the best press that and response that uh, any prime minister has had on Brexit. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. It's what, what you say there about the kind of comms and the, the, the PR effectively around, uh, you know, communicating the messaging and everything. It, is it just a kind of a curse of the time in which you were working that actually it was really difficult to have a good comms day, I suppose, because negotiations were difficult and people weren't maybe in the right frame of mind for breakthroughs and progress. And so actually communicating that effectively on something that is complex, actually really difficult for most people to understand, that's it's almost impossible to have a, to have a good comms day, really. Yeah, I think there's an element of that, but I do think there's a few specifics that were in play. So one, I think, you know, personally, I, I think we didn't probably prioritise that narrative and comms war as much as we should yeah. during that period. And we didn't think necessarily how we should position it to achieve the kind of outcomes we wanted to achieve. So that's so that was one, a kind of strategic decision and, and I think a strategic error on, on the UK's part during that time period. The second is, I guess, you know, we if you remember, you know, we were still in the very immediate aftermath of the vote. Yeah. The Leave and Remain sides were very heavily entrenched. And so basically... You know, I think the coverage was was very polarised. So you either got people who agreed entirely with the EU side, or or with the kind of more Remain side, or people who entirely agreed with the Leave side, and and there wasn't really much nuance or much kind of um, debate being had. So that makes it very hard. You know, you can land certain comms wins in in certain parts of the media, but you're kind of speaking to the converted, you know, people who already agree with you. And so um, landing kind of a more nuanced strategy and trying to bring people along with you across the divide, which was always going to be necessary, I think was very difficult at that time. And so that's kind of inherent challenge um, that we faced. And I do think, you know, look, it's it's been an, a long-term problem. And I think, you know, 
personally, I, I, I think it's taken a lot longer than many people thought for those two sides to, to sort of ebb away a little bit and stop becoming the main dividing line in British politics. But I do think now we are starting to see that. And, and you know, the evidence is that the, the Remain Leave kind of split is, isn't as strong as it was and isn't kind of the key dividing line in British politics. And maybe that's helped with, with you know, achieving what we've got to. I think back, Royal, to when I was at uni and I did a, I was doing politics as my degree and we did a semester on the European Union. And I mean, frankly, it was interesting, but it was an absolute nightmare <laughs> trying to get a grip on it. How did you go about under, learning these processes and how, how the institution works and who the people are and what their roles are? How do you, how do you get an understanding of that when you are a special advisor to the Prime Minister on Europe? So, I mean, I, I came at the, into the job with a slightly different kind of CV, I guess, to most special advisors. You know, I came from the policy world and I had, you know, been working on the EU side and EU issues for some time. Mm. So I was running a think tank called Open Europe and, and, you know, I'd been there in various guises for over six years. And so I'd become ingrained in kind of understanding the EU institutions, understanding some of the key players, um, who the people are. Uh, and therefore, that that gave me a bit of an advantage. Um, but it is very difficult if you were coming to this purely fresh, say, you know, coming out of CCHQ or, or somewhere uh, as a, as an advisor that didn't have that kind of experience. Um, so I was fortunate in that sense, um, and it meant that I actually could hit the ground running as a, a bit more as a special advisor um, because you know I didn't have that uh, that requirement mm. uh, to get up to speed. Can you remember, uh, I suppose, conversations with the Prime Minister and just I sp- trying to navigate that time with her? Because I suppose part of your job as a special advisor is to kind of motivate and encourage or, 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 or try to keep on track as well when perhaps the mentality can be quite difficult if, if progress is slow or if the, if the comms is um, difficult to push through. I, I'm trying to get an insight, I suppose, into, into how you worked with the Prime Minister at that time. Yeah, look, it was very difficult. And I did feel at times, you know, myself and others were just consistently delivering terrible news to the Prime Minister. (laughs) And so, you know, and to her credit, she never took it out on us. And she was always, you know, very good to work with. And, you know, you always knew that no matter how hard you were working, she was working just as hard, if not harder. And, um, you know, it it was easy, therefore, to work and put in the effort for someone like that. So I think the personality does matter. Mm. uh, And I can't, you know, I don't know if you can say that about all recent prime ministers. So, you know, it's it's an important point to know. And I think, you know, people are a bit unfair on Theresa um, when you, you know, people get that um, about how diligent she was and, and how much attention she paid and, and that she weighed these big decisions seriously, as you would hope a prime minister would. That, you know, beyond that, I think, you know, it, it, what I found particularly difficult was, you know, I think, I you know, once you had uh, once we had the 2017 election and we didn't have a majority um once we had the rebellion over checkers and the resignation you, you know it was always going to be very difficult and i personally felt almost impossible to get anything through parliament and so you're kind of having to work knowing you might never succeed and so how do you motivate yourself in that and that's always difficult but i think all you can do is is try and i think you kind of have to take this perspective and i i took in that time that you know fundamentally the country needs to to go through this process and shake this out one way or the other you know a decision had to be made and if it wasn't something Theresa could achieve then obviously someone else would have to have a go and and that's what happened with with Boris and so you know I think it's just kind of trying to see the bigger picture and know that you know this is important one way or another in terms of you know the country working through this Brexit process Mm. Um, and the best you can do is is try and try and find solutions try and find ways through try and be creative 
Uh, and I always took that mindset and tried to bring forward ideas. Um, but, but yeah, you can't get too hung up on whether you succeed or not, I guess, because there's so many other things that are out of your hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, just how, how creative did the ideas get <laughs> in terms of trying to get this thing done? Well, I mean, if you remember, we went through so many different cycles, you know, I think if you thinking particularly at the time, you know, thinking of the period from sort of autumn 2018 to sort of March and, and the meaningful votes in, in March, spring 2019, you know, we did look at very loads of different ways we could try to. Um, you know, for, find ways out of the um, the protocol, the backstop as it was then. We did look at ways to package it up, how to link it to the future arrangement. Um, you know, we passed various motions through Parliament to try to, to set out the options or what we do in certain scenarios. We obviously sent, you know, Jeffrey Cox and, and, and other kind of um, lawyers into the negotiation to look at some of the legal routes for all of this. So, yeah, we explored so many different things. It's just, you know, um, fundamentally, uh, you know, there was a limit to, to what the EU was willing to discuss. And, you know, I do think, obviously, you then look at some of the things like the consent aspect of the protocol, which is is there now and which was put in in 2019 under Boris Johnson, but which was refused to to Theresa or, or wasn't really considered. Um, you know, obviously that I think is, you know, and I think some in the EU might look back and think whether giving concessions to to Boris Johnson rather than Theresa was a good approach. I mean, mm. that's more for them. But um, yeah, it's, um, you know, a lot of it is kind of, uh, yeah, a lot of it is is timing. And, and you know, we tried lots of approaches and um, it just wasn't the right time or, or wasn't feasible at that point in time. Yeah. How much then do you look at the Windsor framework that Rishi Sunak and co have, uh, have managed to agree and have kind of uh, got through Parliament this week as well with, um, with the vote this week? How much do you look at that and think, oh, actually, we laid the groundwork for that, that, you know, this, this is actually the culmination of the work you were doing years ago? Yeah, I think it is a culmination of a lot of work. I wouldn't say it's just a culmination of our work. It is a culmination of work done under, you know, the Boris Johnson government as well and, and you know, David Frost's work and the command paper and things like that. So, look, it's been a long process. But I do think, you know, fundamentally, the approach set out in terms of the channels in particular, I think was first published when I was in government in 2017 or 2018 by the Northern Irish Civil Service. It was something that we then at Dexu took and worked up further and, and tried to develop. And, you know, the, the officials who led the negotiation, the same officials, I was working with then. Uh, and so I think in particular, you know, this consistency in terms of the official side, uh, and I won't name names, but there are a couple of officials in particular who have been there the whole time and who have actually been, you know, totally crucial to the continuity of the UK actually having uh, kind of a knowledge base and, and knowing all the ins and outs of this mm. um, has been really important. So, so yeah, I do think, look, it's been a long process and I, I don't think we would have got where we got to now without having gone through what we went through back then. You yeah. know, as I said earlier, it is a journey and you have to try various things uh, and you know fundamentally i think the eu side in particular but also the uk side had to go through the process of understanding what is feasible in northern ireland what isn't what can work what can't mm. um and you know um testing different options and seeing how things really work in practice on the ground and i think you know particularly once we actually got protocol agreed and have then been trying to implement it and the response on the ground of businesses and unionists has has really kind of focused minds a bit as well just a final one, Raoul. Is um, is Brexit done? 
uh, I wish I wish I could say it was. Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure. Look, I mean, it depends what you classify as Brexit being done. I mean, yeah. it, are we never going to talk about our relationship with Europe again? No, I mean, that's obviously not going to be the case. You know, it is. They are our closest neighbour, you know, our, our largest single trading partner. Um, and so, you know, there's going to be ongoing issues in the relationship and in the dynamic that need to be sorted out. Um, you know, look, the trade agreement itself stores up a number of issues. There are parts of it that expire in the next couple of years, things that can be reviewed. Um, there's also a question now if this change of atmosphere leads to leads to further work into different areas I'm, I'm not sure it necessarily will but it's an open question so look there's still going to be stuff going around in this and still going to be questions about what needs to happen uh, and um you know exactly you know exactly how this will progress and i don't think it's always going to be in a positive direction you know there are risks that things could deteriorate as well so yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't ever badge it as as it's all done and dusted i think we have to accept that this is a an ongoing kind of um, relationship that needs to be managed. And then specifically, I guess, on Northern Ireland, you know, we still have the challenge that, well, we have the winter framework, the DUP haven't backed it. And so we don't know what's going to happen with the executive there and if that will ever be restored uh, in the near future, if we need to go to new elections and, and then what might happen. So so there is still quite a lot of uncertainty around that point in particular. Yeah. You might get called back in. You might have to go in and, and advise all over again. I, I think my time is well, well and truly done, and um, I'm very happy to hand hand the mantle over to others who have clearly had more success. <laughs> they built on your work, Raoul. Never forget it. Never forget it. Uh, That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time. No worries. Thanks a lot. Our thanks to our spagoo, our special guest. Raul Ruparel this week. Nice to get a bit of insider info on how the Brexit deal came to pass. Of course, it was partly his foundation. Of course it is, we can say it. Uh, thanks also to Frankie for sharing her experience of being in Parliament this week while Boris Johnson was being grilled at the Privileges Committee. And it was so important to hear from Kirsty this week as well, given all that is going on with her and her family too. Of course, you can keep in touch with developments on that as things, I'm sure, progress in the coming days. And of course, Kirsty and Frankie will be back on next week's podcast as well. I really hope you will join us then. Make sure you're following and subscribe to the podcast on here. Please tell your friends as well. We'd really love to welcome more people into Whitehall Sources to join us for our insider track on all that is happening in and around Whitehall in politics and for their experiences and insider info. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in your feed next Thursday and we'll speak to you then.